All right, we'll get started. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us for the School of the Word this morning. Thank you for valuing this time and gathering early with us and also for quieting down right now so that we can actually begin. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started with our class, Interacting with Islam. Now, why are we taking uh, four weeks in here to study the subject of Islam? Well, I hope that your attendance here uh, is an answer that, that, that answer to that question is obvious. Um, Christians today cannot afford to ignore Islam. It is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. And while a religious minority in the United States, it's becoming more prevalent. And in the broader New Orleans area, especially in Metairie and, and Kenner, we have a growing Muslim population. So we have more opportunities to interact with Muslims now than ever. Uh, obviously, there's been a trail of headlines the past few years and into this year of attacks by ISIS and Boko Haram and other instances of Islamic terrorism, uh, which has raised the question of what exactly is Islam and, and if Islam is a religion of peace and whether or not groups like ISIS are truly Islamic. And the Syrian refugee crisis has and, and will continue to bring Muslims from the Middle East to our doorsteps. And so this raises complicated policy issues as we seek to address as a nation uh, some real humanitarian as well as security concerns. Uh, in the midst of this, we've had a presidential candidate who suggested banning all Muslims from the United States. So how should we think about something like that? Should we see Islam as a threat? And however we answer that question, should we see the Muslims that we interact with as a threat to us personally. Um, high school students are studying Islam and, and the life of Muhammad in the classroom, which is, has been interesting, but, but often the, the presentation they're given is, is very helpful in some respects and very unhelpful in others. On the evangelistic front, Christians are often unprepared uh, to engage with the questions that Muslims have. I've got a book here I'm going to be recommending uh, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity by Nabil Qureshi. But one of the things that he describes in, in this book is how, you know, even growing up in high school, one of the favorite things he used to play is stump the Christian. And so uh, he would ask questions like, just show me one place in the Gospels where Jesus says, I am God, worship me. And, you know, he said that a believer would typically suggest something like where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so then he would direct them toward John 17, where Jesus prays uh, that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And so he said, see, when Jesus uses that phrase, he's not claiming to be God any more sense than you and I are. And often the, the believer at that point would be unprepared to, to further the conversation from there. So we want to talk through some of these things. And, and in this class, I want to help us interact with Islam on a number of levels. Uh, what do Muslims believe and how can we respond? Uh, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? What is the history of Islam and, and, and how should we think about issues of jihad and Islamic violence? So I want to help us have a nuanced answer to these questions. And so the goal for this morning is to help us understand what Islam is from a Muslim perspective. And probably uh, many of us feel like this is very unfamiliar. You know, we might have some words and phrases and, and mental images of what a Muslim's religion involves. But beyond that, we'd have little confidence in being, being able to talk about these things. So today I'll just lay out the basics of Islam and in the coming weeks, we'll do more by way of interacting with and, and responding to these things. So you guys ready to dive in? All right, let's talk about the meaning of Islam. And throughout this course, I'll try to pronounce words uh, the way that I understand most uh, Western Muslims would, would say them. And also give you a few Arabic words where I can. Don't feel like you need to memorize those things. Uh, but knowing a few of them might go a long way in interactions uh, with Muslims. So from a historical standpoint, you can answer the question, what is Islam, by saying that it's a combination and reworking of some Jewish and Christian concepts 
as well as some Gnostic influences and, and folk Arabic beliefs and practices. And perhaps you might not have been aware that Islam came much later than Christianity. It, it arose in, in the 7th century A.D. Uh, but of course, that is not Islam from a Muslim perspective. From their perspective, Islam has always existed. It is the religion of Abraham and Adam before him. Jesus himself was a devout Muslim. In fact, you and I and everyone else were born a Muslim. Our souls, before our birth, appeared before Allah and, and agreed uh, to take him as our Lord. So they don't see Islam as beginning in the 7th century with Muhammad. Uh, what was presented through Muhammad was the perfecting and the completing of that religion that has always existed. Look at this thought from the website whyislam.org. This is, uh, this is a, we a website from a Western uh, Sunni Muslim perspective. It's designed to introduce people to, to Islam and ultimately lead them to the faith. Uh, and I recommend you, you, you checking out that website just to get their thoughts. But they write, Islam is the culmination of the universal message of God taught by all of his prophets. Muslims believe that a prophet was chosen for every nation at some point in their history, enjoining them to worship God alone and delivering guidance on how to live peacefully with others. Some of the prophets of God include Adam, Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. Peace be upon them all. The prophets all conveyed the consistent divine message of worshiping one God along with the specific societal laws for each nation's circumstances. However, after the prophets delivered the divine guidance to their people, their message was lost, abandoned, or changed over time with only parts of the original message intact. God then sent another prophet to rectify their beliefs. In order to restore the original call of all prophets, God sent Muhammad, peace be upon him, as the final prophet to all of humanity. So that, that is the, the historical continuity and, and consistency that Muslims see Muhammad's uh, ministry sitting in. Uh, the word Islam means submission. Often people will say that the word Islam means peace, and, and that's not true, uh, although it's related to the Arabic word for peace. But it's a peace that comes through submission. Uh, a Muslim is someone who submits every aspect of their life to God. God is supreme and transcendent, and, and all of creation is the realm of submission. And, and so Islam is it's an entire worldview. It encompasses all of life them. The writer Yahya Imerich says, Islam is a religion, a civilization, a state, a social system, as well as a philosophy. And so this morning, we'll talk about what that Muslim worldview is. And at the center of Islam is the Shahada. The Shahada is the, the confession of faith, and it's one of the five pillars of Islam. And this, more than anything else, distinguishes a Muslim. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And we'll talk in a moment about the oneness of God in Islam and, and what specifically that means. But broadly speaking, anyone who proclaims the Shahada is a Muslim. Reciting the Shahada from the heart is all you need to do to convert to Islam. And so a, a Muslim father will recite, recite the Shahada in the ear of his baby moments after it's born. And Muslims will also seek to recite the Shahada at the moment of their death. And so their, their life is to be fenced in uh, by this confession of faith. And here's a, a picture of the the flag of Saudi Arabia, and that is the Shahada in Arabic right there on their flag. And Saudi Arabia, as we'll note in a moment, is the birthplace of Islam. So Muslims are a people of the Shahada. They are also a Quranic people. The Shahada itself uh, comes from the Quran, and it's a summary of its message. And so Muslims are people who are devoted to the Quran as, as the word of God. And the word Quran... Uh, means the recited, and it's said to be the most recited book in the world, and that's probably true. 
Now, on the one hand, you know, that's a, that's a little sad that uh, Muslims have us beat in that way. Um, but uh, there is much more emphasis on reciting the words of the Quran, even more than understanding their meaning in, in, in the religion of Islam. And so devout Muslims will, will memorize large sections of the Quran in Arabic at a young age. Uh, young Muslims will, will know up to, you know, five or six chapters of the, uh, the, the later chapters of the Quran memorized and, and will recite it in their daily life. And we'll see how reciting the Quran shapes day-to-day uh, -day experience for Muslims, even if they might not know what those words mean. The words themselves are, are sacred. Uh, this is uh, from the, the introduction to the study Quran, uh, which is from a Muslim perspective. And, and uh, the editor writes, At, as the central theophany of the Islamic religion. All right, that's interesting right there. Theophany means a manifestation of God. It's a word that's used in theology for when God would appear to Abraham in, a, in some sort of temporary bodily form. And then later would come as, uh, as Christ in the incarnation. But they say the, the central theophany of, of the Islamic religion, everything related to the Quran, the verbatim revelation of the divine word is sacred. From the ideas, injunctions, laws, and other aspects of its message to the physical presence of the sacred text which Muslims read and carry with them or keep in a place of honor in their homes to the sound of its recitation which accompanies them throughout their lives. And so the Quran is seen as the eternal speech of God in Arabic. It, it has always existed on a tablet in heaven. And so it is, it is co-eternal with God. You know, sometimes people will often... Um, compare Muhammad in Islam with Jesus in Christianity and kind of do a comparison and contrast on how those two religions view their central leaders. But that, that actually is a little bit misaligned. Um, in, Is, in Islam, what corresponds to Jesus really is the Quran. The Quran is the eternal word of God that was sent down to us, right? I just said it's the central theophany of the Islamic religion. It is the manifestation of God among us. And it was revealed to Muhammad by the angel Jibril or Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel would recite from this preserved tablet in heaven. And then Muhammad would then recite the revelations to the people. And so from the Islamic perspective, Muhammad had no role in writing the Quran in any sense. You know, while, while the Christian view of inspiration includes the psychology of the human author, uh, Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1 that what he did was he sat down and he interviewed eyewitnesses and he collected together uh, stories uh, and sayings of Christ from those who were there and he wrote it down in an orderly account. But Luke is doing the writing. He's doing it under the inspiration of God and God is ensuring that the end product is exactly as he intends but it uses the, the thinking, the planning, the personality of the human author along the way. That is not the understanding of inspiration from a Muslim perspective. Muhammad was completely passive in receiving the Quran. In fact, uh, part of the Islamic apologetic is that Muhammad uh, could never have written what's in the Quran. It's so elegant, it's so beautiful, and in fact, the Quran in several places uh, presents this challenge. Write, write a book like this. Uh, write uh, a paragraph like this. See if you can do it. There's no way that any human being could ever produce something like this. Uh, it was revealed progressively to Muhammad throughout his ministry. He would receive a revelation of the Quran and then recite it to the people at, at different points up until his death. And there, there were uh, other leaders surrounding Muhammad who would memorize the recitations of the Quran. And eventually it was... It was written down. And according to the Quran, Muhammad was illiterate. And so uh, this process had to be entirely oral until the verses of the Quran were eventually written down. And we'll talk next week about the text of the Quran, how it's laid out, and the relationship between the Quran and the Bible. All right, let's look at a profile of Muslims. There are about 1.6 billion people worldwide who are Muslim. It's about 23% of the global population. 
Uh, John Esposito writes, although Islam is the youngest of the major world religions, it is the second largest and fastest growing religion in the world. To speak of the world of Islam today is to refer not only to countries that stretch from North Africa to Southeast Asia, but also to Muslim minority communities that exist across the globe. Thus, for example, Islam is the second or third largest religion in Europe and the Americas. And uh, anybody know what the largest Muslim nation is in the world? If you had to guess. Indonesia. Indonesia. All right, that's good. You guys know a little bit about this. Indonesia has 13% of all of the Muslims in the world in that, in that nation. Uh, only about 20% of Muslims are Arabic. Uh, there are about 5 to 7 million Muslims in the United States, and demographers expect that Islam is going to pass up Christianity as having the most adherents around the world in the next 20 years, and that's uh, mainly due to the high fertility rates in Muslim families. It's not unusual for a Muslim family to have uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 uh, children, uh, but conversions to Islam are also uh, a significant factor as well. Uh, well, Islam is not one thing. Uh, there are a, varieties, uh, a variety of expressions of Islam and, and different sects. There are two major sects of Islam uh, that are primarily uh, distinguished uh, governmentally, although theologically as well. I provided an article for you. Hopefully you, you picked it up from the back table by James Anderson titled Islam Today. And I'll just take you through all the, the different uh, Muslim groups and traditions. But you're probably familiar with the distinction between the Sunni and the Shia. Those are the, the two uh, primary sects of Islam, make up about 99% uh, of all Muslims will fall into one of these two uh, categories. And, and, and this division has to do with how to trace the successor to Muhammad, right, the, the caliph. So this is all about the, the succession of the caliphate. The caliph is the global leader of Islam, and, and the Sunni Muslims uh, make up anywhere between 85 to 90%. Uh, of all Muslims, and what they do is they trace the succession uh, through who they view as the most qualified person. So uh, it doesn't matter if you're related to Muhammad in any sense, as long as you were respected and qualified to serve as uh, the leader of the Islamic world, you could serve as the caliph. And so uh, they see uh, the first caliph after Muhammad as being Abu Bakr. Uh, then there is the, the Shia minority group, um, which make up anywhere between 10 and 15% of Muslims. And what they do is they trace the succession uh, through the family line, through Muhammad's closest relative, uh, who was Ali. He was his son-in-law. And so the word Shia just means party of Ali. Uh, Shiite is the, the singular of, of that word. And so there are several orders of both Sunnis and Shia, and there are other sects such as the Agmadi, uh, but we're not going to get into all that this morning. But the common identity of Muslims is, is rooted in the Quran uh, as the sacred text and in confessing the Shahada and following the Prophet Muhammad. Let's talk a little bit about what are some Muslim beliefs and, and practices. And, and we'll talk first about the practices because in Islam there is an emphasis on, on duty, on what you do to serve Allah out of, out of respect and for his enjoyment. And, and in most religions, this is a little bit different for Christians to understand. Uh, in most world religions, beliefs take uh, a back seat to religious practices. And it's, it's something unique about Christianity that we put so much emphasis on what we believe now, as we'll see, belief is very important in Islam as well, uh, and more so than in some Eastern religions, but duty is probably closer to a Muslim's understanding of the heart of Islam. If you're talking to a devout Muslim, they'll probably first bring up the, uh, the five pillars before they'll discuss some of the beliefs. Uh, so what are the five pillars of Islam? Well, uh, these are arranged according to a, a Sunni perspective, the Shia uh, would agree with all of these, but they just wouldn't call these the five pillars. Uh, but uh, the first one would be the, the Shahada. We already looked at the, the confession of faith. Uh, there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, the second is prayer or salat. 
these would be five prayers a day uh, facing the Kaaba in Mecca. And we'll talk about the, what the Kaaba is in a moment when we talk about Hajj. Um, but Muslims will order their day around the Salat. And these are uh, prescribed ritual prayers that are recited in Arabic. Uh, they, they come from the, te- the text of the Quran, and there are certain postures that correspond to them, and so that's why you'll, you'll see a Muslim lay out a rug, and he'll be standing and sitting and kneeling and then, and then prostrate himself down and, and, and touch his head to the ground at the moment where he, he proclaims the, the greatness and the supremacy of Allah, and then he'll go back to a posture of, of, of standing. And, and the Salat is is prayed with other Muslims whenever possible. And, and devout Muslims, if, they, if they're able to, they'll make their way to a mosque for all five prayers of the day. And so a Muslim will often say, you know, you Christians go to church once a week. Uh, some of us aren't able to do that. Um, but, but we go to church five times a day, you know, so they'll, they'll often say something like that. Uh, the, the, the gathering day for Muslims is Friday. And so at least Friday afternoon, Muslims will gather for Juma, which is the Friday prayer at, at a mosque. And maybe a sermon will be given by one of the, the leaders of the mosque. It's called an imam. And so they'll gather together on, on Fridays. That's the, the Muslim Sabbath, so to speak. Uh, they'll also pray other uh, prayers that, that aren't prescribed called dua. And, and that could be other memorized prayers that maybe their parents have taught them. Uh, or just free prayers, uh, just, just praying uh, like we would pray to, to God uh, extemporaneously. Uh, third pillar is giving or zakat, and Muslims will give at least 2.5% of their income to the needy. Uh, many Muslims will give much more than that. Some will give 20, 30% of their income to, to help people. This doesn't go to one particular location. This is just helping people in need. Um, Nabil Qureshi mentioned how when... Uh, his sister was getting married. Uh, his mother paid for uh, a, a wedding in, in Pakistan for a poor family in Pakistan. So sometimes they'll do that. When there's a, a significant event in their, in their life, they'll use that as an opportunity to, to give toward blessing somebody else in need. Uh, there is uh, the pillar of fasting or psalm. Fasting uh, from sun up to sun down during the month of Ramadan. Uh, Ramadan is the ninth month in the Islamic calendar. Uh, it's, it's believed to be the month when the first message came to Muhammad from Gabriel. And, and this year, if you're curious, Ramadan is going to be uh, June 6th to July 5th. So essentially during the month of June, just be aware, uh, practicing Muslims. And, and if, you're, if you're a Muslim who doesn't fast during Ramadan, uh, you're kind of like a Christian who only shows up to church on Easter and Christmas, right? So, uh, but anyone who's a practicing Muslim will, 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 will do all the five pillars, especially the Salat and, and Ramadan. Um, but just be aware of that if you have any Muslim coworkers. So they will not be eating any food or water. Nothing will pass through their lips uh, from when the sun rises until the sun sets uh, during this lunar month. Uh, so what they'll typically do is they'll gather together as a family before sunrise and they'll load up on a, on a big breakfast. And then uh, after uh, sunset, they, they have a, a, a big feast called an iftar. And uh, Muslim communities will, will, will go around and different families will host the feast in their home and provide the food. <clears throat> and it's, it's considered to be a, a real joyous celebration. So Ramadan isn't, uh, um, you know, just a somber uh, month. It's, it's, a, it's a time of gathering and celebration for, mus- <clears throat> for Muslims. And ironically, they will, uh, if it were Ramadan and I was Muslim, I wouldn't be able to do this right now, but I need to. <laughs> um, often Muslims will gain weight during Ramadan uh, just because of uh, a lot of eating at irregular times. Uh, uh, the final pillar is pilgrimage or hajj, and uh, they're, they're called to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lifetime, if, if at all possible. And what, what they'll do is they'll go to the, the Kaaba, so you're probably familiar with uh, something that looks like this. So this is, this is in, in Mecca, and it, it's, it's called the Kaaba. 
Uh, it was believed to have been created by Adam and then recreated by Abraham and Ishmael. Uh, and the Kaaba's always been religiously significant in Mecca uh, prior to Muhammad. And we'll talk a little bit about, about what did, went down there. But uh, these are Muslims that are circumambulating. They're walking around the Kaaba on Hajj. Hajj takes place at a specific time of year. So you can go to the Kaaba, you know, throughout the year. But if you're going to do Hajj, if you're going to make the pilgrimage, there's a set time to do that. And he'll, this will give you a perspective those are all, all those little white dots there are Muslim people uh, that, that are circumambulating the, the, the Kaaba. If you consider how many Muslims there are in the world, and if they're all essentially supposed to do this, this is a very uh, busy time. Uh, often people are trampled to death in the, in the process, and they, they consider that to be an honor. Uh, Muslims will try to uh, do Hajj toward the, the end of their life if possible, and if they can die in Hajj, uh, there's no better way to go out uh, from a Muslim perspective. Um, all right, so those are the five pillars. Let's talk about the six articles of faith. Uh, these are just uh, the basic Muslim beliefs, and we'll spend more time next week about Muslim theology and in the Quran and how that uh, compares and contrasts to what's in the Bible. So that's what we'll do on week two. Uh, but there are six articles of faith. And, and the first is uh, belief in God, uh, specifically the, the oneness of God. It's called Taweed. Uh, there's only one God, and it's only possible that there could be uh, one God. And God is not only one in essence, so not only is there, there one being of God, but, but he's also one in person, if Allah can be described as, as personal. There's a little bit uh, a problematic concept of thinking of Allah as personal. Um, but this is Taweed, and, and so to ascribe deity to anyone else, uh, including and especially Jesus, is to associate someone else with God. This is called the sin of association. There is, there's God in a class of his own, and to, to consider anyone else as divine is to commit the unforgivable sin of shirk. Shirk is the sin of association, to associate someone with God. Uh, Muhammad's parents uh, were polytheists, uh, as was everyone in Mecca, pretty much, uh, up to the point of Muhammad. Um, and so they died as uh, mushrikim, as those who had committed the sin of shirk. Uh, Muhammad, uh, his, his uncle, had adopted him, and he died as a mushrik. And, and so uh, Muhammad would, would pray for his uncle. He, he tried to get him to confess the shahada throughout his life. And so uh, it, it said that Muhammad uh, went to God to plead for mercy uh, for his, his uncle who, who died in this condition of a shirk. And so what Allah uh, did was uh, he allowed him to have the best place in hell. Uh, and the, uh, <laughs> the best place in hell is to, is to be ankle deep in the fire so that his brains are boiling. Um, so that, that's what happened. But it just it gives you a sense of the seriousness of the sin of shirk. And uh, typically, um, Muslims will view the, the doctrine of the Trinity as a form of polytheism, as committing shirk. They, they think it's just a contradictory cover for Christianity's belief in multiple gods. Um, God is supreme and transcendent and essentially unknowable. And so there's really no personal access to Allah. Uh, Muslims come to know him through the revelation brought by a messenger, Gabriel, through another messenger, Muhammad, from an eternal tablet. So that, that's the layers of, of access to, uh, to the revelation of Allah, which is obviously starkly different from the, the view of Christianity that God has revealed himself uh, principally in entering into creation and, and personally coming uh, among us. Uh, from Islam, God is not a, a father in, in any sense. Uh, he does not beget, nor is he begotten. Um, he is not the father of Jesus, and he's not the father of you and me. Uh, sometimes Western Muslims will use the language of fatherhood for, for God, but that's really something they've taken over from, from Christianity. It's not intrinsic to the religion. But uh, God is seen as very forgiving 
and very merciful. Um, and if you do any reading in the Quran, you might be surprised by how many times this is mentioned. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it fills every chapter of the Quran. Uh, the, the first uh, chapter, which is an introduction to the Quran, uh, surah, a surah is just a, a, essentially a word for, for chapter. It means fence, I think. Um, but verse 1 through 4, this is how the Quran starts. In the name of God, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, praise belongs to God, Lord of the worlds, the Lord of mercy, the giver of mercy, Master of the day of judgment. And so that is how the text opens. And throughout the Quran, it, it says that truly God is pardoning, forgiving. He's, he's clement. Um, but God's forgiveness is, is arbitrary. There's no sense that uh, Allah's justice needs to be satisfied. Um, so there's no, there's no atonement in Islam. There's no need for atonement in order for Allah to forgive. He just chooses to not hold that against you. Um, there's the uh, next article of faith is, is the belief in prophets and messengers of God, and, and they believe in a line of messengers. Uh, Adam, we saw this in that quote earlier, uh, Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, and Moses, and Jesus. And Muslims have a, a high regard and respect for Jesus. Uh, the Quran teaches that, that he was virgin born. And that he was sinless. Uh, they recognized that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Jesus is going to return in the future. An issue in the day of judgment. And so many Muslims will tell you that they love Jesus. They have great respect for, for Jesus. But all messengers, uh, Jesus included, are merely human. Uh, which we've already seen why that's the case. Uh, Muhammad is seen as the seal of the prophets. He's the final prophet. He's the prophet who comes and clarifies and perfects what God intended to communicate to all of the previous messengers. And uh, Muslims see Muhammad as the example for their lives. And so they, they will study Muhammad. They will study what did he do? What did he say? How did he, you know, how did he live? Uh, because a devout Muslim, uh, male especially, wants to be as much like Muhammad as, as possible. And so sometimes you'll see um, Muslims, uh, this is a Muslim uh, apologist. Uh, he's from Toronto, Canada, Shabir Ali. Uh, this is a really likable guy. Uh, he, I, I really enjoy listening to him speak and, and watch him in, in debates. Uh, very kind, um, uh, very intelligent and well-spoken. Um, but you see how he's got the beard and the shaved mustache. Well, wh why will uh, Muslim men sometimes do that? Because I believe that's uh, how Muhammad uh, wore his beard. And so they want to they dress like him. You know, sometimes you'll see the pants that kind of go like this. Uh, that's because Muhammad wore that kind of pants. So there's a, there's a whole Muhammad clothing line, I guess, uh, to, to follow. Uh, the next article of faith, uh, well, before I move on, because of that, uh, Muhammad is a very sensitive subject. And uh, so if you interact with a Muslim, there are significant problems with the life of Muhammad that we'll, we'll discuss in this, this class. That is not where you want to begin uh, because uh, Muhammad is highly respected and highly regarded. Uh, they believe in the revelations of God and principally the Quran. So they, they have a doctrine of previous revelation, the law and the Gospels, and the, the Psalms, uh, that would be the Torah and the Injil, and the Zabur, and uh, Surah 548 says, we sent to you, talking to Muhammad, the scripture with the truth, confirming the scriptures that came before it, and with final authority over them, all right, so they would say there was the Torah sent to Moses, and the Injil was sent to Jesus, uh, but... Now, this is, you know, here's the debate. It doesn't seem that this is what Muhammad thought, but uh, later Muslims would say those previous revelations have been corrupted. So we don't have them today. Uh, what's in our Bibles is not the Torah and the Injil. It's the leftover corrupted versions of, of those previous documents. That's what uh, at least a, a well-thinking, um, a, a polemically oriented Muslim will, will say. Uh, you know, perhaps other Muslims will just say, yeah, we believe in, in the Bible. But once they begin to encounter what the Bible actually says, 
uh, about Jesus especially and, um, and, and the, the, the differences there. They explain those differences because, well, this is corrupted revelation. Uh, on the other hand, the Quran has been perfectly preserved. Nothing has changed about the Quran uh, from when it was uttered from Muhammad's lips to when it was first written down to the Quran that we have today. That's how they, they see uh, it being perfectly preserved. Again, whyislam.org says the Quran is unrivaled in its recording and preservation. The astonishing fact about uh, this scripture is that it has remained completely unchanged over the past 14 centuries, a fact that is attested by both non-Muslim and Muslim scholars alike. There are no versions of the Quran, and every copy in the world remains identical word for word in its original language, Arabic. Uh, which, by the way, from the uh, Muslim perspective, the only language in which the Quran is, exists is in Arabic. In principle, it cannot be translated. Uh, now, since the vast majority of Muslims around the world don't speak Arabic, uh, they have access to the Quran only in terms of uh, the Arabic they have memorized and through a translation. Um, and what they describe that as is a transliteration of the meaning. It's not really a translation. So to read a translation of the Quran is not to read the Quran, although you are getting a sense of the message of the Quran through reading uh, a translation. So this is, again, very different from the Christian view of, of inspiration and how we view the Bible. But, but they look upon uh, Christians and they say, hey, you, you got the KJV and you've got the NIV, you got the NASB, and uh, you got all these different versions of the Bible, and you have all these manuscripts of the Bible, and there are differences among these manuscripts, uh, but look at the Quran. Um, the Quran is, is perfect, and that testifies to it being uh, a revelation from God that has been uncorrupted. Uh, we'll talk next week about why that's not quite so. Uh, they believe in the realm of the unseen, uh, which would include angels. Uh, Muslims, uh, mo most Muslims believe that there is an angel on uh, each of your shoulders, one angel records all your good deeds and one angel records all your bad deeds to be brought up on the last day, which I guess that's where, you know, in the whole Looney Tunes thing where a, a good angel, a bad angel pops up on your shoulders. I don't know if that, I'm guessing that's where that, that image came from. Um, but they also believe in uh, what are called jinn. We get our word genies from, from this. There's this, this whole parallel unseen universe of jinn. Jinn are not angels, but they are, they are fire beings, um, and they are manipulative, and they, they influence hu human beings. They whisper in our ears. Uh, a lot of our understanding of demons would correspond to uh, jinn, and, and actually Satan in the Quran, is, is, his name is Iblis, and he's jinn, and uh, Satan fell because he refused to bow down to Adam. Uh, they believe in the day of judgment, uh, a doctrine of the resurrection. Um, all actions and words will be brought into account, and uh, people with good deeds will go to heaven, and people with bad deeds will go to hell. Uh, now, that's a little complicated by two things. One, uh, the essential arbitrariness uh, with the law, who can just choose to forgive because he says so or not because he says so. Uh, and then also, we'll see in a moment uh, how Muslims understand predestination. Uh, but the last days will come about uh, with the return of Jesus. And he will come, and at his coming, he will kill all the pigs in the world, and he will destroy all the crosses uh, when he returns. Uh, they believe in a doctrine, finally, of predestination. God has decreed all actions and people's eternal destinies. Um, a key difference between the Christian doctrine of predestination and predestination in uh, Islam is that while we believe God ordains both the ends and the means so that in God's plan, what we do matters. So God's chosen not only that you would be saved, but that you'd be saved by the preaching of the gospel and by coming to faith in Christ and by, you know, because that faith is genuine, living a life that corresponds to that, that is, that is fruitful. Uh, and so even though Christianity has a, a very strong view of of providence, um, predestination in Islam tilts toward fatalism um, because essentially what you do ha has no relationship toward the end that, that Allah has decreed. And so in, in that sense, the life that you live uh, really doesn't 
matter in, in, in terms of, okay, if the, if on the last day, if God has decided you're going to go to heaven or, or hell, there's no relationship between your actions in God's plan and, and your, your destiny. Um, all right, quickly, I know we're starting to run out of time, but I'll just handle these last two subjects quickly. Uh, just so that we're aware, we'll talk more about these in the coming weeks. There are two um, categories for other Islamic writings uh, or called Sunnah. Uh, there's the Hadith. The Hadith are these sayings of Muhammad that are not part of the Quran. And so in, in one sense, they're, they're not inspired sayings, uh, but since Muhammad is a prophet and since he is the example for Islam, Muslims want to know a lot about what Muhammad said and what he did. And so these were sayings that circulated orally and were eventually collected together and written down. And Sunnis view uh, two collections in particular of, of, of Hadith. I'll just give you the top two are Sahih al-Bakari and Sahih al-Muslim. Uh, Sahih al-Bakari, I don't know how many volumes it would take up in print. It would, it would cover a bookshelf. Uh, it, was, it was collected by a man named Bakari, and he did his own investigation and tried to find the most reliable, trustworthy sayings uh, of Muhammad that were transmitted reliably. And so that, that gives a lot of background understanding to uh, how to understand the teaching of the Quran. And so most uh, Sunni Muslims will see if it's in Sahih al-Bakari, it's as good as gold in, in terms of what Muhammad said. And there are the Sirah, which are early uh, stories and bi biographies of Muhammad's life. All right, let's uh, close with talking about uh, Muhammad, and I'll just give you a basic uh, storyline, and we'll talk more uh, in the coming weeks about this. Um, Reconstructing the historical Muhammad is, is a little challenging from the sources, and we'll explain that. Um, but what I'll present to you for now is the basic biography of Muhammad as Muslims would hold it. And we'll talk more on week three about the historical Muhammad and some of the challenges that his actions pose for Islam. Uh, but Muhammad was born in Mecca in A.D. 570. Mecca is, is in present-day Saudi Arabia. Uh, he was orphaned as a, at a young age, and he was taken in by his paternal uncle, Abu Talib. Uh, Mecca was a very important religious city, right? It contained the Kaaba. And as I said, the, the Kaaba was seen to have religious significance by the people in, in Mecca. And at the time, it, it housed hundreds of deities. It's it said to have had 360 idols in the, in the Kaaba. Each one had its own day dedicated where uh, devotees of, of that uh, idol would, would come and come and, and, and pay homage at the, uh, at the Kaaba. Uh, so this is an extremely polytheistic culture. Uh, but according to Muslims, Muhammad was, was always a monotheist, even before his call as, as a prophet. Uh, historically speaking, I think it's, it's, it's probably likely that you would classify Muhammad as essentially a, a Christian heretic, uh, like Arius in the, in the fourth century, uh, who did not believe that Jesus was God in the, in the fullest sense. Uh, Muhammad seems to have some Christian influence in terms of his beliefs. Um, but Muslims would see Muhammad as always being a, a monotheist. He was a, a caravan trader, uh, which means he, he would have had encounters with Jews and Christians. He married a wealthy widow named Khadija when he was 25. Uh, later on, he married other wives as well. The Quran uh, limits the number of wives that a Muslim man can have to four, uh, but uh, Muhammad was not as restricted. Um, in 610, he was about 40 years old. He was praying in a cave on Mount Hira where he'd often go to meditate. And after 40 days, he was met there by the angel Gabriel, uh, who Muslims will often say uh, Gabriel embraced Muhammad. Uh, if, you, if you read the early sources on this, he squeezed Muhammad. And Muhammad at first thought he was under attack by, by a jinn. Uh, and, and Gabriel was, was squeezing him and demanding that he would recite from a book. And Muhammad would reply that he, he could not recite because he didn't know how to read. And the angel told him, again, recite what you've been given. And so it, in, in this encounter, Muhammad receives what is the first revelation of the Quran. Uh, Surah 96, 1-4 says, Read in the name of your Lord who created. 
He created man from a clinging form. Read, your Lord is the most bountiful one who taught by the pen, who taught man what he did not know. Uh, now notice, uh, that is chapter 96 of the Quran. Uh, chronologically, that is the first revelation given to Muhammad. So the Quran is not arranged in chronological order. Uh, the Quran is arranged according to size. So you have Surah Al-Fatiha is the opening surah, which is you know, somewhat brief. I think it's seven verses. Uh, ayah are, are verses in, in the Quran. Um, but after that, you get uh, the largest chapter of the Quran. It's, they're each given a name, and that, that's, in English, it's the cow. Um, and... Uh, after that, chapter 3 is the second largest and on and on and on. So that, that is the arrangement of the Quran, uh, which is why if you just open it up and start reading it and expect it to kind of be laid out like the Bible, it's going to be very, very confusing. But um, that is how it is, it is arranged. Uh, at this point, when he receives this revelation, uh, Muhammad is very frightened. And uh, again, this would not be a, 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 something that most Muslims will be conscious of, but the early sources say that at this point he was suicidal. Uh, he wanted to end his life. Uh, he did not know what was going on. He went to his wife Khadijah at the time, and she said, an angel has, has met you and is, is calling you. Uh, three years later, he began to openly proclaim the message of monotheism and the revelations of the Quran. Um, this was not well received in Mecca, which had this whole economy that was based in polytheism. And so Muhammad quickly became the most hated person in Mecca. Uh, and, and he and his followers were persecuted during this time. It's often exaggerated how much persecution that, that he received, but they were, they were hated and despised and sometimes under physical threat. Um, and so after that, in 622, he flees 250 miles to what's later named Medina. This is called his hijra or migration. And there in Medina, he grows in power. He has an, an increasing following of, of Muslims. And they begin to uh, engage in raids and, and battles on, on Meccans uh, during this period of time. And we'll talk more about that on week three. And then he eventually returns to Mecca with this huge force in 630 and, and cleanses the Kaaba of all of its shrines. Um, and Islam becomes the official religion in Mecca with Muhammad as, as the leader of central Arabia. And, and Muhammad died in, in 632 without appointing a, a successor, which is why that has become a major conflict. Uh, but he was then buried in Mecca and uh, there's a particular dome that designates his area of burial. And most Muslims believe that if you were to, you know, lift that up, which they would never do, and, and look inside, you would still see Muhammad uh, just as he looked when he died, that the, the bones of prophets do not decay. And so Muhammad would, would be smiling back just as he looked on the day of his, of his death. Uh, all right. What should we think about Islam and, and Muslims? Uh, is Islam a threat? Uh, well, I will argue in this, in this course that uh, I see Islamic ideology in, in its original form as a, as a threat to Western social order, but I do not see Muslims as a threat to you and me personally, and I don't think that we should interact with them in that, in that way out of, out of fear. Uh, for the most part, uh, Muslims are very hospitable, and they are happy to engage in conversation uh, with you. Typically, there's a little bit of a taboo about uh, men and women talking to one another, but uh, men with men and women uh, with women, um, you know, they, they want to see you come to, to Muslim faith as well. And so uh, they would be happy to, to have conversation and just uh, join in friendship. And they typically enjoy serious conversations uh, about theology and about religion. Um, we should avoid hot button and sensitive issues at first, uh, stay out of the political realm. Uh, but if you're going to focus on something, and we'll talk more about this next week, uh, focus on the issue of, of assurance of salvation. Uh, there really is no assurance of salvation in Islam. Um, part of that's because, you know, Allah has already determined your fate, uh, regardless of what you do. And uh, part of that's also because... Um, the way that you gain forgiveness is through your works and through your good deeds. And, 
Um, there is no certainty about how you are measuring up or how forgiving Allah is going to be uh, on the day of your death. Um, focus on that and, and on the person of Jesus, uh, especially his death and resurrection and his, his deity. The, the death of Jesus is a really good place to start. Uh, Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. And that is one of the uh, most certain facts of history is the death of Jesus on, on the cross. And, and so uh, talking through that is, is a helpful place to, to begin. All right, I've given you some resources there. there there's an article sharing the gospel with Muslims by Bassam Shadid uh, from Table Talk magazine. Um, I, this book, I would really recommend all of us to read this. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity by Nabil Qureshi. Nabil was an Ahmadi uh, Muslim. He's, his parents were from Pakistan and moved over to uh, the United States. His dad was in the military. And uh, this just does a good job of addressing a number of things. One, just seeing Islam through a, a former Muslim's eyes. And he, he, he does a good job of kind of just putting you there. What, what was his experience like growing up? And then as he began to interact with his friend David Wood in college, you get insight into their conversations and, and, and what was addressed. And so all the uh, evangelistic and apologetic concerns uh, between Christianity and, and Islam come up in this book in a very helpful way. Uh, I think you'll, you'll find it to be very interesting. All right. Well, we're past time. So with that, we are going to close. Uh, look at the schedule there. We'll, uh, we'll, next Sunday, we'll do What Does the Quran Teach? What Christians Should Know About Islam's Holy Book. And then on the 29th, Is Islam a Religion of Peace? Understanding Sharia and Jihad. And then on June 5th, Who is Isa ibn Maryam? Which is the name for Jesus in the Quran. Uh, Jesus in the Quran versus the Gospels. All right, thank you so much for being here. You guys be blessed and equipped.